The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you to turn with me your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be looking at a relatively short passage, verses 12 through 17. If you were to go to an emergency room and demand to see a doctor, but you were in perfect health, they would turn you away. You would only be wasting the doctor's time and be in the way of those in greater need. If you went to a musical performance and paid for the cheap seats in the back, they're not going to let you sit down in front of the stage. Life is filled with examples of restricted access. Heaven also has restricted access. Thankfully, the Bible is clear on how we might gain entrance into the eternal dwelling place in presence of God. We're reminded here in Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, once again, I would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are familiar with many kinds of reward programs. Our credit card companies and favorite stores offer rewards for spending our money. People will promise a reward for the return of a beloved lost pet. Sometimes authorities even offer rewards for information leading to the capture of a criminal. Many people think that God may offer some similar kind of reward program according to the world's standards. In fact, all the religions of the world offer various incentives for those who are pious and faithful at temple, offering up prayers and sacrifices. People need to be motivated. Well, the Bible does promise reward, but not in the, in the way that the world offers rewards. Back in Hebrews eleven six, we read, 
that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Our passage here outlines what it means to seek God, how to run the race, as we read earlier in chapter 12, filled here with various warnings and challenges. Here we find three exhortations to pursue prayer, to pursue peace with others, and to pursue purity. And binding these things together is the central theme of holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. This simple truth helps us, helps us understand the overall arc and direction of Scripture, whose aim is to restore a lost people to God, to bring them into his presence, to see his face, to enjoy eternal acceptance and fellowship. But our flesh is weak, and so we resist the call to holiness. But those who are humble, who have ears to hear, receive grace to help them in their time of need to run the race with perseverance. In verse 12, we have an opening command to lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees, which I believe is a reference to prayer. As we find throughout Scripture, the lifting up of hands and bowing on the knees are common images of worshipful prayer. He also, the author calls us to straighten the pathways for our feet that we may run well, that we may take up the walk of faith, which is oftentimes a depiction of the spiritual life. You remember Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And throughout the wisdom books, we find that a man's walk is emblematic of his life with God. In the latter part of verse 13, we have this reference to the lame with two alternatives that in our lameness, we'll either be put out of joint or we can be healed. I find it interesting that the author just assumes that something is lame. We are weak. In our core nature, in our desires, our motivations, our entire orientation to God. I find that prayer, in many ways, is a barometer of the spiritual life. And so if we are weak, if we are lame, if we are backslidden of any kinds, it's in this area. I believe in this passage that we have a, a reference to the forefather Jacob, who wrestled all night with God. An image that many of us take to be a powerful incentive and encouragement to wrestle with God in prayer when meeting great trials and difficulties. You recall how at sunup the next day, the Lord touched Jacob's hip, causing it to be dislocated. And so Jacob went lame. He limped into his brother's presence, a meeting which he held with great dread. Our prayer life, our walk with God has been made lame by the fall. And we will either let it become permanently damaged and out of joint by our neglect, or we will pursue healing 
by humbly coming before the Lord our God. Jesus healed many lame people, paralytics, the blind, the deaf, the demon-possessed. And what strikes me in those encounters is that on a few occasions, Jesus asks the lame person a simple question. Do you want to be healed? He doesn't assume what would be so obvious to us. But it turns out some people don't want to be healed. They prefer to beg, to whine, to complain. They enjoy the attention and feeling sorry for themselves. But when healing the lame, Jesus only had one requirement. Believe. Believe and you will be healed. So if you struggle in your prayer life, if you are feeling lame spiritually, if you are lacking in motivation to pursue holiness, I would first encourage you to examine whether you understand and believe the gospel. Do you believe that God will forgive and accept you if you trust in Christ alone? Do you first accept that you are lame, that you are a spiritual invalid without hope, save only in his sovereign mercy? Do you want to be healed? Are you tired of backsliding, of feeling lethargic, of making little progress in the Christian life? Do you want God to restore you? Then ask, seek, knock. These simple commands we find in Scripture over and over again that, that urge us to seek the Lord while he may be found. Perhaps this morning you're thinking of someone else, someone that you care about who is not pursuing holiness and you wish they were. How do you take this passage? Well, one, my practical encouragement to you is to not nag them, not be demanding of them, but pray for them. Model for them what it looks like to pursue holiness. Run your race and encourage them to do likewise and wait patiently on the Lord. Just last week, we had a little girl in our Bible to School release time program who, after hearing the gospel for the first time over a couple of weeks, uh, responded to an invitation and expressed to her small group leader that she wanted to, to do that thing to invite Jesus into her heart. This little girl from an unchurched home got it. She understood that you have to ask. Oftentimes our prayer lives are lame because we are too busy. We have misplaced priorities. We're too all too willing to trust in ourselves and unaware of our deep neediness for God. We can be resentful towards God for some affliction, disillusioned about the Christian life because it is hard. Well, the Christian life is hard, and we cannot merely pray away our difficulties. 
But we do have the promise of a holy comforter who hears us, who helps us to pray when we don't know how to pray, who promises to give us more grace, to persevere in trial, and to hold on to the hope that a time is coming when pain and sorrow will be gone forever. In my busy times when I am feeling weary, I find myself saying to myself before God, humble yourself. Trust in the Lord. These two simple things that are so hard to do, to humble yourself and to trust in the Lord, I find these themes all throughout Scripture. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Verse 14 goes on to exhort us to strive for peace with everyone, peace with others, like prayer before God, is a marker of holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Notice that this is not a passive peace. This is not merely a laid-back personality. You must strive for it, yearn for it. It requires effort, as does true holiness. The author says strive for peace with everyone. Everyone? Even people we don't like. Even people who are in our way. Even people who are easier to ignore. How well do you get along with other people at work, at home? Are you characterized by a peaceable spirit? Or are you irritable or passive? I greatly appreciate Peacemaker Ministries, a ministry that equips Christians to do biblical conflict resolution. I would commend their books and seminars. They ascribe what's called the peace breaker, the one who disrupts peace with a demanding spirit, critical, irritable, failing to confess and forgive. On the other end of the spectrum are the peace fakers, those who avoid needed conflict, who enable the aggressive, who demonstrate a passive-aggressive spirit, who pretend that everything is fine, but on the inside they're stewing or venting behind the person's back. But the true biblical peacemaker pursues reconciliation, takes responsibility for mistakes, confesses sin, generously forgives, seeks out constructive conflict, determined to resolve important issues. Perhaps you are dealing with an overbearing coworker or a boss who is critical, who abuses privileges, who is demanding, and perhaps you're struggling, hardly able to eat or sleep, feeling overwhelmed by your work situation. What are your options? Well, you can try to avoid this person, You can look for another job, or if God is calling you to remain in that job, you must patiently endure and perhaps muster the courage to humbly confront this person, trusting 
the Lord with the results. But what is not an option is stewing in resentment and bad-mouthing the person behind his or her back. Yes, dealing with difficult people is challenging. But there are opportunities for us to trust the Lord, to seek godly counsel and be a witness for Christ. As Romans 12 exhorts us, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. I've been reminded in the times that I've served in a mediatorial role between conflicting parties, the the vital importance of listening, of seeking first to understand, demonstrating empathy. So I found that most people can receive critique and correction and rebuke if they know that you care, that you listen to them, that you are demonstrating respect and empathy. Well, the climax of our passage comes here in the latter half of verse 14, where the author adds to peace, striving for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's a clear reference to Exodus 33, where after Moses' request of God to see his glory, the Lord responds, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see my face and live. There's a great gulf between God and man. He is creator and we are the creature, and yet that fellowship existed in the Garden of Eden. So the great divide is the problem of sin. A holy God cannot dwell with sinful man. The great theme of the Old Testament is that God is holy, that man in his sin separates him from God. And when Israel rebelled against the Lord in the wilderness, God threatened to wipe them out, and only Moses' intercession kept them from being destroyed. But then God insisted that he would not go with Israel on this journey. And Moses pleaded with God for his care, for his protection. Otherwise, they would never make it to the promised land. And so God provided through the tabernacle, a place for his presence to dwell and giving various regulations for sacrifice and atonement, instructing the high priests on how they can approach God with fear and trembling. A thorough reading of the Old Testament begs the gnawing question, how can man be reconciled to God? How is it that God can dwell with man? And can man once again be in God's presence to see his face? These questions are answered in Jesus Christ, who reconciles us to God when we believe in his perfect life and his atoning death for sins. Jesus commissions his followers to share this good news throughout the world. The eternal Son came and tabernacled among us, taking up our human flesh, rising from the dead in a body imperishable, so that you and I might have hope to dwell in the eternal presence of God, away from sin and death forever. The call to holiness is not a works-righteous, self-improvement program, 
It's not a matter of our good deeds outweighing our bad deeds. It's not a matter of striving so that God will love us more. We do not pursue holiness to atone for our sins. Rather, we pursue holiness because it pleases the Father. It's what we were made for, made in his likeness and remade in the likeness of his Son. Some people believe that God waits to see how good we are before determining whether we are fit for heaven. Others believe that after we die, we go to some intermediate place to be punished for our sins and purified that we may be fit to enter paradise. The Bible teaches neither of these falsehoods. Rather, if we trust in Christ as Savior, we are holy. We are spotless. We are unblemished through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ who atones for our sins, past and future. And Christ, even now, is at the Father's right hand interceding on our behalf. You know, the pursuit of holiness is not a matter of striving for God's acceptance. It is the journey that God has set us on, having been set free from our bondage to sin, to live the life that God has planned for us, that we might bring him glory, that we might magnify him to others. Now, holiness is the joyful liberty of the children of God the well-loved adopted sons and daughters whose delight is to please the Father who is worthy of our humble, grateful striving by prayer, by making peace, by putting off sin and glorifying Him. And so the call to purity in verses 15 to 17, has several more warnings with practical ways that we might pursue holiness, how we might run the race in a manner pleasing to God. Verse 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Turns out the call to purity is a community project. We're not just responsible to ourselves, we're actually accountable to one another. And what does the author mean by obtaining grace? Well, it doesn't mean earning grace, because grace is not something that we can earn. But the NIV helpfully translates this as, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Grace is easily missed. We fail to obtain it by not paying attention to it, by being negligent, by taking it for granted like Esau, who did not value it. Hebrew repeatedly warns us against allowing the bitterness, a bitter root from taking hold in our hearts. Back in chapter 3, verse 12, the author writes, to not let an evil, unbelieving heart lead us to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So King Saul became bitter when God took his kingdom away to transfer it to David. Judas was cynical, bitter, and covetous when he sold Jesus to the authorities for 30 coins of silver. We too can fall prey to the seeds of bitterness 
that can find their way into the cracks of our hearts when we feel betrayed, when we feel let down, when we are suffering great loss, when we are doubting our faith. The heat, the heat and dry spell we endured back in July, August, and September was murder on my lawn. I lost some 25% of our grass and spent the better part of a month or more pulling up dead grass and weeds and working the soil and applying the seed and watering every day before sunup to get my lawn back in order. And of course, in that condition, the challenge is not letting the weeds take back over, but allowing the good green grass to flourish. The heat of life pressures us. It exposes the cracks in our hearts, and if we are negligent, we can allow weeds, weeds of bitterness to take root in the cracks of our hearts. Our text warns us that these things cause trouble. They spread and can defile others. So we must be diligent to uproot the bitter seeds, to confess them, to repent of them, to water our hearts, to saturate our souls with the life-giving word of truth. The call to purity is also a call to put off sexual immorality. And sadly, in this day and age, we have to define what that is because not all confessing, professing believers are agreed. But the Bible is not lacking in clarity on the subject. Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures are crystal clear. The sexual relations outside covenant marriage between a man and a woman are a violation of God's will. God designed designed this for the enjoyment of husband and wife, to strengthen the marital bond, to propagate children for the protection of his people from pagan practices that have existed from ancient times and persist in myriad of ways in our modern perverted world. Sexual desire is not evil. It is made by God, but has become warped and twisted by the fall. And wicked people, through devious intention to seek to rationalize that which is clearly forbidden by God's word. We must be clear and not be swayed by a debauched society to accept that which God does not accept. We must be diligent to teach our children, protect them and guide them, to lead them in God's ways for there are many who are eager to pervert their understanding and their identity. And we need to be careful to guard our own hearts for falling into sexual immorality. I liken it to the lantern moth that sucks the life out of trees to wither and die. So immorality sucks the life out of you, leaving you withered and useless to die. So I challenge husbands and wives to make time for one another, to talk, to connect, to pursue emotional and physical intimacy. You neglect it to your own harm and only give the enemy a foothold in your marriage. 
My wife and I for years have been committed to reading books on marriage and more recently been listening to really helpful podcasts put out by ministries like Family Life Today. I find this is a great way to bond, to grow in understanding. And yes, after 20 plus years, there are still things that we are learning how to serve and encourage one another. A final warning comes in verse 16. A warning against becoming unholy or godless like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. This idea of unholy or godless or profane, it's the attitude of presumption, of dismissing God's place and importance in life. It's a kind of functional atheism where we take for granted our life, breath, and everything else. The godless feel no obligation to God, show no gratitude to God, act and presume that they have created themselves with no help from God. Well, too little and too late, Esau recognized his mistake as his father gave the blessing to Jacob and begged hopelessly for a second blessing. And so it will be on the day of judgment for the unholy, the unrighteous who scorn God's authority, who reject Christ's lordship. There will be no second chance on the day of judgment. Hell will be a long, tragic pity party of regret. The Bible is vivid in distinguishing these radically two different outcomes of eternal misery and eternal joy. Those who reject the path of holiness designated by God, who insist on their own merits, who rebel against the Lord passively or actively will get their due and be forever cast apart from the one who made them for himself. But those who humble themselves, who admit that they are not holy, who accept God's holiness through faith in Jesus Christ, who commit to the pursuit of holiness, will enter the joy of their master to find acceptance, holiness in a fellowship far beyond anything we can imagine in this life. Recently at our meeting with members of the downtown mosque, one of the young men was in awe of a reference made to Moses and the elders of Israel eating in God's presence up on Mount Sinai. You can read it in Exodus 24. Afterwards, he reported to some of our members that he wanted to begin reading the Bible. The biblical vision of entering God's presence is appealing to people who are dissatisfied with the world and with worldly religion. At that same event, a wise Muslim woman challenged me with the question, how can God be just to punish Jesus for our sins? That was a golden opportunity for me to explain that at the cross, God is both just and merciful. As Jesus serves as a substitute, a sacrifice in our place, the one who lived the life we cannot live and who paid the debt that we cannot pay. It's a ransom. It's buying us back from slavery that we might serve 
the living God. And so to the skeptic's question, how can we possibly know that God loves and cares about us? The cross gives us the answer. As Paul so helpfully writes in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible offers many rewards to believers. Deliverance from the punishment that is to come on Judgment Day. Forgiveness and cleansing of our sins. Entering into eternal glory. But the greatest of these rewards is entering into God's presence. To see his face. As 1 John 3 reminds us, that we shall be made like him because we will see him as he is. I don't know of a more compelling reason to run the race, to pursue holiness, to be rewarded for one's heart's greatest desire to be with God forever and to see his shining face. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, You have called us to run, to persevere, to pursue holiness. And we are weak in the flesh. We are entangled by many setbacks. But we know that you have embraced us and accepted us and made us holy through Jesus Christ. And that gives us hope and encouragement that we can run well, that we can pursue the things of God. And I pray for each one here that as they run the race this week, that we would run in a manner pleasing your sight, that we would delight ourselves in you, run hard after you, and receive the strength that only your Holy Spirit can give us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.